0: what
1: kind of a show are you guys putting on here today you're not interested in art no now look we're going to do this thing we're going to have a conversation
2: from chicago this is film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm michael phillips
1: excuse me excuse me miss
0: could you give us some change please we need to buy ice cream Because we don't have any money. We just have five cents. Yeah, we just have five cents. And the doctor said we have asthma and we got to eat ice cream right away.
2: Josh, could you please get your kids out of the studio while we're recording, please? (laughs) Those are not my kids, nor are they Michael's, but some of the child actors who make up the cast of The Florida Project. Director Sean Baker's follow-up to his acclaimed 2015 film Tangerine. Set in the shadow economy in Disney adjacent Orlando, Baker's film stars many non professional and first time actors, along with a two time Oscar nominee, Willem Dafoe. Michael and I review the Florida Project, plus, we have an interview with Baker ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome back, Michael. It feels like just Thank you. 45 minutes ago we were talking Blade Runner 2049, but no, a full week has passed, and here we are, fortunate to have you again on the show.
1: Yes, well, and blessed, really. Blessed. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to use, but I didn't know if it was appropriate.
2: <laughs> okay. I'm glad you went there. We do have a great interview with Florida Project Director Sean Baker coming up later in the show. Adam Kempinar sat down with Baker a few weeks ago now for that. Baker isn't just a really talented emerging filmmaker after Tangerine and this new one. He's sort of the guy that you just like knowing is out there making movies. He's genuinely curious about the people and the communities that become the subjects of his films. And he finds ways to make what could be issue pictures, I guess you could call them, about people living on society's fringes. He finds ways to make them also funny and exciting and full of life. Adam's conversation with Baker is later in the show. But first, Michael and I weigh in on the movie. Baker's tangerine made my 2015 top 10 list. Is the Florida Project headed somewhere similar?
1: The man who lives in here gets arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go
0: anyway. Could you give us some change, please? The doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream. Why right away. we? Here you go.
2: Hey, Lee, we got a situation here, open up. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool.
0: We're trying to get it back alive.
2: Water balloons thrown at tourists.
0: Blue-bees, blue-bees. I failed as a mother, Mooney. Yeah, Mom, <laughs> you're a disgrace.
1: Josh, when a movie shot almost entirely on iPhones turns out to be not just striking looking but also really good dramatically, people notice. And that's just what happened with director Sean Baker when he co-wrote and directed the 2015 film Tangerine set in L.A. and scrambling after its own characters, as a transgender prostitute chief among them. Now Baker has co-written and directed The Florida Project, again with the same collaborator, Chris Bregouch, And though this is another sun-drenched movie, it's set in Orlando, not L.A., and it's in the vicinity of Disney World, but worlds away. This is the story of a mother and a daughter living in a $38 a night room at the Magic Castle Motel. It's managed by Bobby, played by Willem Dafoe. We meet a lot of other characters ordinarily left in the margins of American movies, in the Florida Project. Josh, there's lots to talk about here, including how different this film is visually from Baker's previous film, Tangerine. So the question is, is Baker making good on the promise of his previous picture, which, you know, wasn't his first film, but it was the first one that really
2: launched him into an international sphere of attention. What yeah. do you think? Uh, d- Lodged him into my attention, and I'm grateful for it because this is absolutely a worthy follow up. Distinct, as you mentioned, in many ways, but also carrying that same vibrant humanist feel to it, both visually and thematically, that just makes your heart like burst at once with, (laughs) with like burst with anguish and also like love. For the characters, uh, anguish at some of the situations they find themselves in. These are really emotional experiences, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And the visuals have a ton to do with that. I think the distinction maybe here is that the Florida Project is more a work of composition Uh, With a, a steadier camera, though it definitely moves at times, but we also get these lovely images of these little kids against vibrantly painted backgrounds or the strip malls that they run past and the cameras just fixed watching them run. Whereas Tangerine was constant motion, right? With these handheld iPhone cameras, very close up in the characters and moving about what is in common is the use of color. Tangerine, maybe more of a swirling color experience. And here it's kind of a a bright burst of color that you get that stays there on the screen. This motel, this extended stay motel where the characters live is painted lovingly by Bobby, the Willem Dafoe character, we should say, in this Brilliant lavender, and we're talking even the curbs of the driveway leading into
1: yeah it. every every shade. It's I guess it's some the characters one of them at least refers to it as purple, but it's really more mauve. And and I love what Richard Brody said in the New Yorker. He said Bobby's a lot of things, but mainly he's a mauveist.
3: You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he
2: must love the color yeah. because he keeps the place <laughs> looking great. And and that's a that is a, a bright, exciting. It's a loving color, right? And and these these kids we meet need more lavender in their lives mm-hmm. they they're they're painfully vulnerable in ways that will break your heart and also little monsters in ways that infuriate you, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. they're they're just free to run across this motel. Um, one of their pastimes is to go to the upper deck and spit down on the cars <laughs> of right. the people and, and below. This is, and
1: this is the first thing we see in the picture. It's just kind of uh, you know, two of the kids are just hanging out in the first shot of the picture, um, and they're just kind of looking for something to do. And then you know, the, the, the third kid comes in and says, "I got it, I got it. Well, let's let's do this now for a few hours." And it's spitting on <laughs> a car parked in a neighboring motel, and so you're getting. A little sense right away of how big and how small the kids' mm. world is, because yeah. you know the, the movie takes place all within a few blocks, but it's it's a huge world to these kids, and you know, and in dramatic terms, these are really kind of radically unsupervised. You know, kids at risk, and a lot of the Huge picture. Risk. You know, this is not what this film is not. Is what you said earlier. It is not a plot-driven message movie. It just isn't. It's it's largely focused on getting by week to week. You know, we 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 uh, you know we see them kind of. Cadging free meals at a fast food joint, where one of the one of the workers has befriended the mother. Uh, we see these kids sort of scamming their way into free ice cream. We see them just sort of running roughshod over and rampant over the all over the grounds of the motel, including uh, causing one power outage and in another case like starting a fire at yeah. a different building. Yeah, and I so, mean they're they're
2: monsters. You no, know, they're
1: and and all this you never quite know the severity uh, of whatever's whatever is possibly going to happen until it's. Over And mm-hmm. that, and I, I've i rarely seen a movie, Josh, that has kind of that much of a real-world sense of, like, I, I don't even really know how much to, like, quote, worry about this fictional movie character. You know, yeah. a, you know yeah. I think anybody who's a parent has to have a lot of skin sure. in the game watching this thing. But, you know, the movie is very disconnected in some ways in a way that does not hamper it at all. I think when the movie becomes more, when the plot becomes more focused on the specific kind of like work work that the mother alley does and how that's actually really going to bring in the child protection services yeah. agents, you know, for the kid. Bobby, uh, Willem Dafoe's character, who's been kind of, you know, he's top billed and he's, you know, in the manager of this motel and he's keeping a pretty good eye on all these disparate lives. And he's got kind of a weird... Um, you know, uh, affection or affinity for a lot of the troubles uh, that that he sees these people wrestling with, he kind of enters the story um, in a in a in a kind of a crafty way. It becomes more and more prominent and important mm-hmm. to to the fates of these people. Oh yeah, and, and and the whole film works that way. It's very disparate and disconnected at first, and then it sort of gets it's like a funnel; it gets narrower and narrower. And by the end, I was really, really. I
2: mean, I, I was I was never not with this film, but. Uh, this is one I really hope people find. I oh, really absolutely. Do. Yeah. yeah. And we'll get to that end. And I definitely want to spend time on Defoe. But I'm wondering, I don't think this ever tiptoes into that realm of exploiting our worries about the children. Did you feel that way? To, no. To, to me, even when something really horrifying is right around the corner, uh, I felt like it was more a picture of the reality that kids like this might have to deal with than trying to ring up the drama or to ring out our emotions in some way. I, th- I think the Florida Project really nicely walks that line. And, and maybe one reason is because it's, it's not all obsessed with the awfulness, if you want to call it that, of what some of these kids face and having to live life day to day, not knowing where their next meal comes from. That doesn't seem to be the main thing it's concerned about. And it also, this is crucial, and Tangerine was so full of this, it allows these characters moments of grace and loveliness and beauty too. So it's not wallowing in the grittiness, I guess, is what what I'm trying to say. And, And there's a couple instances. One of them comes early on. It relates to that opening sequence where they're spitting on the car's windshield. So they get caught. They get in trouble. And Hallie... Drags her daughter to apologize reluctantly, right? Because obviously, this is where the kid's learning this sort of behavior. And we see many scenes of that where she's modeling her mother, who's mm-hmm. very abrasive and aggressive for her own reasons. Desperate, desperate child. She's desperate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So she has her reasons, but that's how she meets society, and her daughter is following in those footsteps. But she brings her nevertheless to make this apology to the woman whose car has been spit on. And as the woman and the mother are standing there watching the kids clean it up, this weird moment of community develops among them, even though they were antagonists before. Because this other woman is also raising, I think, her grandchild, who goes on to be one of Moni's friends. Right, right. And they're in a similar situation and they start to recognize that. It doesn't become too mawkish. They don't all become friends and everything work out. But there's this moment of gentleness that that the film also takes time for. And I want to mention another one, which is one of my favorite scenes I've seen so far this year. It's when Defoe's Bobby is done with his rounds. It's about dusk, and he's just leaning over one of the outside balconies, the walkways for this motel. He pauses, takes a break, and lights a cigarette. And the lighting here, we should say that the cinematographer is Alexis Zabe, notably has worked with Carlos Regatas, so we're dealing with some real talent here.
1: Yeah, fantastic. If, you if you've never seen
2: Post-Tenebras Lux, oh, yeah. uh, oh. that worked together. Uh, Silent Lee. Light as well, They yeah. they worked on. So in this moment, which is very dark, Defoe's cigarette lights up and a second or two later all of the outdoor lights that are on a timer for the motel flicker on mm-hmm. almost in response to a cigarette like he's like he's That's some great, sort right. of wizard casting a spell on this place and that is partly his role and maybe here's where we can get into Defoe he's You know, at one point, one of the—I think Hallie even says, you're not my dad, you know, but he's sort of like a quarter dad to the people (laughs) who who live here. Yeah, he's like a camp counselor for for a really really unruly camp. That is another good comparison. And there's affection between him and the residents. There's tension. There's anger as well. And, man, I don't think I can give a detached response to this performance because I think I love this character so much that I can't tell whether Defoe's giving— as brilliant of a performance as I think he is, or I just like this guy because he's so protective in the right way, but not also limited by his role. He doesn't own this hotel. He has bosses. Right. And you can see this, his distress mirrors ours in the audience. Okay. Because there are things he can do to protect these kids. And we see him take action in certain moments, but he also knows he can't watch them all the time. And so he's living with that. And, and it's, that a tra- it's a
1: transient motel. These people come and go. Exactly. That's, this, is the, this is the tragedy of it. I think he, and, that's
2: the tragedy and it plays on
1: Defoe's yeah, face. Yeah. And I think. And I think the, the one of the real strengths of, of the way Baker works as a writer and as a filmmaker is that he rarely tells you a lot of biographical detail until. You might sneak a little in at the end. We don't really know anything about Bobby, where he came from, what he's doing here until, you know, very, very near the end. You get a couple of details. And are, you're right. It's just a
2: detail. And it, and they're good. It's and not like a here's Bobby's backstory. Right, right, right. right.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, it's not like a flashback or anything, but it's a very, if, if ever was there a movie this year that defined present tense
2: filmmaking and, you know, like what's happening mm. this minute to these people, yeah. this is the movie. Yeah, that that is a good way to describe it. So we're both on board with Defoe, it sounds like. Yep. What did you make of the kid performances. I love
1: it. I, I mean, I, I there's a lot of a lot of the movies very funny, and a lot of the a lot of the humor comes from just just kind of what a brash little sob <laughs> Brooklyn Prince is. And, I mean, the kid is six years old. I don't know if the actress is slightly older or not, but the character is six, and yeah, she's just sort of barreling through life, just sort of talking back yeah. to everybody, and. But all these survival mechanisms have been mm-hmm. learned, you know, over time and, you know, and during the course of the film, we we see exactly how and why she had to learn them. Um, it's a little like – and the comparison has been made in other reviews by – uh, by many people to Francois Truffaut's 400 blows where you sure. just see kind of a very you know very bruising tough adolescence on the run and that's kind of what's you know that that's that comparison's useful for that because this is a film even if it's pictorially and cinematically a much different looking film than Tangerine and for the reasons you cited it's not it's not a lot of kinetic handheld it's a lot of very kind of like carefully considered but not not inactive camera work um, it's really alive, and and aside from the fact that the cinematographer Zabe is a genius with color and just sort of tone, it's I, I guess one of the things I really liked about it the most, Josh, is that you have here a filmmaker who is not trying to extend the style or the approach of the previous film, Tangerine, which really called for this breathless handheld kineticism, mm-hmm. but is going for a different panoramic, right? Yes, yeah, This is many yeah. characters and you never quite know how much time you're going to be spending with any one set of characters in this film. And that's one of the, again, one of the great strengths. If it was less effective, the Florida Project might kind of make it itchy and it probably will make some people itchy with, okay, where's it going? Who am I supposed to be focusing on? That sort of thing. It might also if it was less well written and less well acted, the Defoe character, Bobby, the manager of the place, might come off as a bit of a kind of a cliched, kindly uh, overseer and benevolent. Oh, he plays on so it's not, much. No, it's just a, it's a real more guy. More nuance than that. It's a real guy in a real yes. situation, and, and that that takes away kind of the potentially paternalistic air of the way the story goes. I, I don't know. It's. On some level, I will say this, I was a little more immediately taken with tangerine. Hmm. And I was, uh, I guess I was aware with the Florida Project of kind of a a studied effort to really make this different kind of picture. Um, That said, it was an easy one to see a second time. And then for me... Uh, I don't get to see uh, as
2: much as I'd like twice, and this one I was very happy to. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I believe it. Yeah, for me, the the child performances, I mean, they're all good. And and Brooklyn Prince, she has this maddening little smile that it's sort of she's admitting guilt in her smile and at the same time what she's saying is but I'm a cute kid so you can't do anything about it anyway <laughs> and she pulls that out all yeah. the time especially on Defoe right especially yeah. on Bobby and and their relationship is is just a again a, a beautiful thing to watch because this kid what would her life be like without Bobby in it you know there, there's some direct instances where we get a sense of what it might be like
1: yeah and it, and all, then ta- there's... it all takes place in one summer we should say yes yes a very you know, compressed time you know, frame. this is among other reasons why the kids are running around, you know, absolutely on their own. Yes, yeah, uh, without, yeah, without the without the
2: child protection services, people like knocking on every door every day. <laughs> yeah, I do think you know the as good as the kid performances are, they're they're still performative, right? You do get the sense that these kids are very aware of the camera being there, and that doesn't make them. Bad performances. I think it makes them different than something like you know Quvenzhané Wallace in *Beast of the Southern Wild*. That's the sort of child performance where it's almost transportive because you you get the sense that she's just being. There, there is no real awareness that the camera is there. So there's, it's a different shading of child performance. This one's that, closer.
1: This one's closer to T- Tatum O'Neill and Paper Moon or something, where, where you had like a phenomenally
2: uh, so precocious sort of skill level, and it's still yeah. effective. And and maybe that makes sense for this role as well though because this is a child who is always performing right, right? she she is always enacting something in order to get something because as you said that's how she's learned to survive but the movie does not indulge that performance the kids
1: it just sort of captures them and then moves on i think that's part of the, maybe that's one of the big virtues of the way the movies kind of patterned. It's just you know it's more more, and, more of a yeah. mosaic, and you got a dozen or even more you know scenes. I mean, there's a, there's a very funny scene where a couple <laughs> a couple that, that from somewhere out of state, and oh, may, yeah. maybe out of the country, I honeymooners. I think
2: they're from Brazil.
1: I think that's so right. Honeymooners <laughs> have come to Orlando thinking that the Magic Castle is somehow actually the Magic Kingdom. It's a hotel connected with Disney, An it's official not, Disney this hotel. This is not, and of course, this is the <laughs> this is the thing that doesn't have to be. Stated too too bluntly by the Florida Project, this this whole movie is about what's happening in the shadow of this well, of the of the now grand, we're getting, uh, of yeah. the most famous
2: piece of artifice in you know in American tourism. Right now we're getting to the ending, and I don't think we should spoil it, but maybe talk about you know whether or not it was effective for us. For me, it was it was a total gut punch because there's there's two stories going on here. There's the immediate concerns of these kids in this place, and then there is, as you mentioned, this other world steps away that is going through the motions without recognizing these people or this place. One little detail that I love is the tourist helicopter that takes off and lands in the property just next to this motel. And at one point early on when the tourists are leaving, they're taking off, Hallie and, and Brooklyn, they're having a picnic and they can see them and they just give them the finger. And, you know, you, you're like, whoa, OK, what, what's that all about? Well, what, it, what it's about, what that helicopter is representing is this sense of tourism dropping into this world where they live, barely touching it and then floating away. Yeah. And I think there's a level of self-indictment that the movie – for the viewer, at least for me, this was my experience, that the movie gets to with this really bravura ending – that worked me over. It's a risk. I think Baker and his collaborators are taking a risk here because suddenly that – let's just say that wall of these couple of motels on this road is broken, OK? And and we go somewhere else with certain characters. And for me, it was an invasion of the have-nots into the land of the have. Mm-hmm. And I think it – one argument might be it makes too explicit what was going on underneath the film. But for me, I liked the gut punch because, hey – I'm a guy who's taken his kids to Disney World, okay? I've never stayed at an extended stay hotel. So it's one thing for me to go see a movie and get an experience of what that might be like. And I think the ending of The Floor Project is kind of saying, okay, but let's take it a step further. Let's ask like really what does this mean that there are these other lives that maybe you don't – no, I don't have an answer for yeah, it, yeah, but yeah. I like that the Florida Project made me reckon with that reality in my own life.
1: It's amazing to me, too, how, how um, in a, even in American independent filmmaking, you know, like, like away from the major studios, you don't often get uh, successful films that, that take place just above or just below the poverty line. And you know certainly Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy did yeah yeah uh, and you know there's been there's been, been a few but this is one that I think very successfully it just captures what it's like for and and we're not talking the, the, one of the ironies is that a thirty eight dollar a night motel room. You add that up over a few weeks, and it's a lot
2: of money. You know, well, this this is why Hallie's got to work. She's got to yep. f- get that income yep. in order to stay there, or else she'll end up somewhere that's even more difficult. Or are they, or are they just to decide
1: to, you know, s- skip on over to one of the nicer hotels around the like, f- f- six, eight blocks away, and, and basically uh, steal a meal at the buffet. <laughs> right I mean, this in is, one sequence, yeah, yeah. And this, I mean, this is this film is not crushing neo-realism. It's not that kind of experience. It's not a harsh. Uh, as you said, it's not really about a, a kind of grit. It's really more about, um, in a plausible way, I think, finding finding a way to explode visually kind of the situation these people are in and also just deal with um, stuff people don't want to deal with in the movies very often, economic resentment, uh, economic deprivation uh, mm-hmm. without demonizing anybody, you know? And that's sure. what I love about this guy. This guy's, uh, as you
2: inferred in the intro, this guy's got a, a huge heart and just a great wellspring of talent. Yep. And The Florida Project is certainly full of both. The movie is currently playing in a limited release. I'm like you, Michael. I hope that this gets a lot of word of mouth and can expand beyond that so a ton more people get a chance to see it. If you are one of those people, let us know what you thought. Send us your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. And there's
1: more Florida Project talk ahead from the filmmaker himself. We're going to have Adam's interview with director, co-writer Sean Baker. When we come back, stay with us.
3: Do some flips and
1: shake our hips and save our tips and take a trip to Florida.
2: You just heard Michael Phillips and I review The Florida Project. Now we're going to turn the show over to Adam and his conversation with Florida Project director Sean Baker. Baker is the director of six feature films going back to 2000, but for many people, including us, it was his 2015 film Tangerine that really got our attention. That film, famously shot on an iPhone 5, was set in Hollywood on Christmas Eve and trailed a pair of transgender prostitutes as they hunted down a pimp-slash-boyfriend. While authentic to its gritty setting, Tangerine was also moving and funny and deeply empathetic to its characters. It was also one of the most acclaimed films of the year, racking up awards at festivals all over the world and making appearances on many critics' best of the year lists. Not to be outdone, we here at Film Spotting gave Tangerine our Golden Brick Award for the best film of the year from a new or emerging director. Baker's new one, The Florida Project, made its debut this spring at the Cannes Film Festival. In his interview with Adam, Baker talks about making an issue-oriented film about Florida's hidden homeless that's also inspired by The Little Rascals. And he talks about what it was like inserting the veteran actor Willem Dafoe into a cast of kids and non-professionals. At the end of the conversation, we'll hear Baker's answers to the film Spotting Five. This is our fun rapid-fire Q&A. First, though, Adam starts his conversation with Baker asking about The Florida Project's remarkable child actors.
0: All of the scenes with the kids, the trick you pull off here of them not feeling really like they're acting at all—it does seem like you're just capturing them as they are in those moments. How did you pull that off? Because it has that sense of almost improvisation, as I said, real life as it's happening, but also it feels like it's it's serving your story. Well, thank you. I really, it was very, very
3: important to me to have very um, just amazing little. Performances from these kids. I I wanted. That's the fir- when I see a film that has uh, you know children characters in it. I um, I'm always weary. I'm always concerned that I'm going to see that stilted Hollywood uh-huh. child performance. And um, and I wanted to avoid that at all costs. I just uh, the previous year saw you know Bruno Dumont's Petit Can Can, and you can see. The height of you know what what real child performances can be. I'm very inspired by the Little Rascals. I think that they um, achieved stuff a hundred years, almost a hundred years ago, that we haven't been able to achieve much of uh, of that sort of thing since. Um, so, um, I worked with an acting coach by the name of Samantha Kwan. I I did not know how much I needed her until we were actually rolling. At first, I thought, I can probably handle this. I can probably use editing to manipulate performance. But I also was very, I, I was adamant about taking the time cast right i always do i mean cast is everything and and i can't live with my films if i if i see a weak link Mm -hmm. i I, the the cast i have to be incredibly proud of the cast and very happy with the entire cast so in this case i was like i'm not going to make this film unless we find the present day Spanky mcfarland um (laughs) spanky i consider that like the ultimate child actor and now uh, now now i consider brooklyn to be because there was that one day where i was getting a little bit worried we're about two months out from shooting and we didn't find this this girl yet and suddenly you know brooklyn walks in for her audition and within seconds there was something we're all looking all our team that we're all giving each other the eyes of uh okay this i think we found her yeah Uh, she's just so incredible and she worked very closely with with sam but to tell you the truth with her in particular she's a born thespian i mean she really is is acting there is a true performance there, a true character that she found. Um, she is wise beyond her, uh, her years. Mm-hmm. I can't speak more highly of her. I just love her so much, and I'm, I'm, she brought so much to the table, and I can't even imagine this film without her. We were yeah. going to make this film five years ago. We were trying to find financing before Tangerine, actually, and Tangerine actually allowed us to make this movie. But now I'm, we were so frustrated then. It's like, we can't make this film. I don't know what we're going to do. But now I'm so happy it didn't happen because, well— Brooklyn would have been one, <laughs> so so now she's the proper it was age meant to be it was in some way, yeah. yeah. But 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 really quick, getting back to Samantha and the and being the acting coach, she's she really uh, for the three kids, you know, Christopher Rivera, um, Valeria Coto, and, and Brooklyn, she really made it a really fun sort of summer camp environment for the kids. It was shot over their summer, so we were taking their summer away from mm-hmm. them. So we wanted to give them the best experience possible. It feels like Mooney's having a summer, the perfect summer experience. So, I think they yeah, were. Yeah. And and at the end of every day, you know, you have limited a number of hours that you can work with children because of child labor laws. So, you know, you you get to that 6-hour mark and you have to let them go and she would never want to go. Hmm. She, was, she was she was having so much fun. She never wanted to go. We were like, well, it's the law. Get out of here. <laughs> but um, um, it was just. Uh, I think because it was such a like a like a family unit, it was so they were the kids were having fun. They were doing workshops, experimenting. That that by the time we actually got them in front of the camera, they understood their characters enough where if I actually did have the audacity to ask little six year olds to to improvise, it was fine. They would they would actually be able to pull it off. Yeah. And and especially Mooney. I mean I'm Brooklyn. She really Brooklyn has that innate sort of uh that that genius, the the capability, the ability to to comedically improvise. Which is incredible at that age. I, Absolutely. I mean, like the the um and no spoilers, whatever but <laughs> But, at the end of the film near the end of the film we we just spend time with her eating at at brunch mm-hmm. uh, at a at a higher end hotel that her mother brings her to, yep, and um, I just wanted to document her eating
0: right, which yeah, you do because yeah, we yeah. don't even cut. To no, the mom at that point. We just no. stay on
3: Mooney. A series of jump cuts yep. just watching her. And what I did was that I just basically rolled two large, two long mags on her, which are 1,000-foot mags on a 35-millimeter camera. So it's literally like 20 minutes. And we just watched this girl eat <laughs> for 20 minutes. And, and all of our scripted lines, we, Chris and I, of course, we do have a full screenplay. So, But I, I encourage improvisation on top of it. So. She got through her 15 scripted lines within a minute and a half, and mm-hmm. we had 19, 18 minutes to burn. So we just would ask her questions. Oh, what do you think that tastes like? What, you got know, it. Uh, what do you wish that tasted like? All this stuff. And then I'm sometimes even feeding lines to her or taking her lines and, and, and kind of change. Like if she gives me something that's almost there, I can quickly figure something out mm-hmm. with Chris, and we can deliver the line back to her, and she'll feed it to us. You know, it's, it's just really uh, – it was wonderful to see her do that. And it, she yeah. had a... she we. It was like a stand-up comedy uh, night because we had 40 people in that room, casting crew. Just, she was just, the star. Just,
0: s- just watching this little uh-huh. girl eat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Was it's, it's one of those things, though, to talk about trying to avoid certain missteps that a director could make with a child actor. It's another thing to actually avoid them. So were there tangible things based on your cinema viewing experience? Were there things you specifically knew you wanted to avoid that you were looking for, or was it more of a feel when you got on set with her? Chris and I always talked about how we can't stand
3: when kid actors are acting older than they are. Right? Right. Or when they have adult qualities or they're using vocabulary that's just mm-hmm. is simply uh, something they would, you know, never, never know at that age or learn at that age. So we um, so we would there was a point in which we basically had to go through all of her dialogue and just start simplifying things Mm -hmm. um there's a line in the film where they're sitting in the tree that had been knocked over in a storm and um my my producer Shi ching while we were location scouting she goes you know why i love this tree because it's uprooted but it's still growing I was like, beautiful line, and actually, to tell you the truth, that probably sums up the whole movie right uh-huh, there. Uh-huh. I want that to come out of Mooney's mouth, but she would never say, "I love this because it's uprooted." <laughs> uh-huh. You know, so we had to figure out a way that a six-year-old would say Damn. it in this in an innocent uh, manner, and, and I think we figured that out. Yeah. So it was really just about um, putting our own selves into a six-year-old's mind, but then on top of that, just allowing. Brooklyn and the other kids to to sometimes just be loose. I mm-hmm. mean, they they did have to learn the dialogue, and that's one thing I learned as a as director who's 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 uh, directing little kids. No matter how professional they are, they they actually still have to really understand what they're they're doing. They have to understand the scripted lines. They have to be the blocking mm-hmm. as to just you can't just tell them the blocking. You have to show them the blocking. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but then I was always. While we were shooting, I was saying, okay, you guys, you got it. You got it. Now give me something... Give me something else instead of that line that you said. Give me something like that line, or maybe how you would say it in real life. And and the thing about the three kids that we chose that we cast is that they were three extroverts, so they were they were never scared about trying something. They didn't. They weren't embarrassed, which is a wonderful thing. You, don't, yeah. you never want your your
0: your actor of any age to feel intimidated or embarrassed about trying things. Yeah. And uh, they certainly weren't. So in this ensemble of less experience actors and quote-unquote non-professional actors you have the consummate pro and someone like Willem Dafoe playing Bobby the manager of the motel and he's a character who certainly I think you could say is ineffectual he commands almost no respect in some ways from his tenants and yet in some dangerous situations even he's the only one looking out for these kids and sometimes he's the only one looking out for the parents and I really was struggling in a way if that's the right word with his character I love that he's he's human here Mm -hmm. because he's not any one thing I felt at one point, like, okay, he's just this really compassionate man, and I respect that. And on another level, I was like, well, maybe he's just too weak. He's so weak, he mm. just tolerates it. It's not about compassion at all. He just, he just keeps almost enabling some of his, his tenants. And I, I was wondering how you spoke with Willem Dafoe about that, how you, the conversations well, you guys had about that character. We met
3: real motel managers along Route 192. And what was striking to me was that these gentlemen had to were in a very tough situation mm-hmm. they didn't sign up for this i mean this is these were motels that were at one time targeted towards tourists now they're basically welfare motels so they are in a very they're in a position in which they they definitely have to hold on to their job you know this is their the jobs are scarce out mm-hmm. there they have a job and they and have we to see his boss their, yeah a few times yeah exactly yep. they have to support their family um they have to be they have to with very, very little help, they have to to manage this business. Um, yet at the same time, you know there is a compassion there. These are you can't help but notice the struggles of the of the families living there, and I think that in our. In our interaction with the real managers, they they said that. They're like, I don't want to get too close because I know I may be put in a position where I may have to evict one of these families. And I know that that means they're going onto the street that night. So there was a reluctant Mm -hmm. fatherhood or parental um, figure thing going on there. And um, I saw it in all the managers. So we wanted to work this. We wanted to have Bobby um, basically have that struggle, you know, not to get too close. But at the same time you see it in a you see it in Willem's eyes that he truly deeply cares for, for both you know, for both uh Mooney and her mom. And yeah. um even bends the rules just slightly. Yes. And so um and Willem understood this. He actually came to the set one week early before we even needed him to sort of absorb the environment, meet uh a couple of the managers down there and get himself to that place and uh it was really he's transformative it's incredible to watch him work and because he 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 within a week he became the florida man we wanted him to become he got his spray tan he got uh you know he came to to the set with a list of accessories he wanted the sunglasses really Uh, yeah like he was building his character and um and also, just have to tell you how patient he is. I mean, like imagine him. He's a seasoned actor. He's been working for years. He 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 doesn't have to on a, on a Hollywood shoot. He's on Aquaman right now. I doubt he has to. He has to be. Uh, you know, has to. There, even though the kids are wonderful, they're oh, six and eight years old. Right. I mean, you know, this it's a it can become a headache. So he was very patient, and he was very giving. He was very uh with With Bria, he had those long scenes. Bria was so green. she had like two weeks of an intensive you know basically uh, acting school mm-hmm. <laughs> it was us basically working with her for a no it was a month uh before the shoot so but she was also you know i can't imagine what she was going through like uh you know having to hold her own with Willem within like a week of meeting him and, right and so um I think he just put everybody at ease yeah. and he didn't judge. He didn't, uh, he he was just there to help,
0: which yeah. was great. Yeah, it certainly comes through it. working with him in the performance. Okay, I warned you, one drip and you're out. Oh, come on! Out now! It's going to melt outside. It's melting inside too. But Bobby... Out.
2: <gasps> Thank you very much.
0: You're not welcome! I think, for me, what's so remarkable about Your movie is how you capture, without in any way romanticizing the lives of these families staying at these motels, Mooney's ability to live in this fantasy world of her own. These motels essentially are her theme park. She gets to run around with her friends. She gets to do what we all wanted to do as kids, run around unsupervised. And she stops and gets some food there. She picks up some ice cream there. How appealing was it for you to try to realize that world from her point of view and in the process recognize just how different it could be from that point of view. That was a a treat for us to be able to,
3: that portion of the movie, to really just focus on the childhood adventures, the Little Rascals Mm -hmm. aspect of it, was, was the easy part for us not the easy part but the fun part for us you know there's this whole other side of the movie that's almost very procedural and and what's going down with with uh, social services et cetera, child welfare services but you know our focus was going to be on the kids and we wanted to have the uh, take the audience on an adventure in a very in a way in which the audience is one of the gang Mm -hmm. you know and so i've been very transparent about how influential and inspirational the little rascals has been to my career i mean i i, I point to it in every film hmm. and uh there are direct you know there, this one is more even like a tribute to the little rascals and uh and so you know just uh taking the audience and and just really i i didn't really need it to be through the through the eyes of a child mm-hmm. but to be
0: just in the presence of these children, having, spending the adventurous summer with them. Yeah. yeah. So was it that little rascal's love that made you want to focus on that child point of view? Because I know that your producer, Chris, is he your producer? Or is he he's just your co-screenwriter? The,
3: he's, he my, he's my co-screenwriter.
0: Okay, your co-screenwriter, yeah. Chris he, did, he was one of the producers on this film. Got yes. it. I know that this is... This comes from his own life experience in terms of visiting Orlando and seeing these places and that drew you in and you guys spent a lot of time there and did a lot of research. You could have found any number of different sort of threads or storylines or people in a way to kind of base your characters on what made you tell a kid's story.
3: Well, there were, I guess it was the juxtaposition of what Mm -hmm. was going on in this particular, in this area. I mean, you know, the hidden homeless situation is, is a nationwide issue. Um, But the fact that, you know, right outside of the parks in Kissimmee and Orlando, you have essentially homeless children. And so that juxtaposition of, you know, of of, of, of basically homeless children living outside what we consider the most magical place on Earth for children, a, a, a place that was basically designed and created for children. Uh, Well, we we wanted to point out the fact that, look, if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. Hmm. And it was also, again, yeah, and it gave me the chance to tell a child's story, which I had always wanted to do. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. So Chris brings me the subject. We start studying it. We look into it. We realize our focus should be on the kids. And then it was it was my chance of of kind of melding an issue film uh, into a uh, into this this uh, film about kids that i 've always wanted to do. If you think about what the little rascals essentially was was they were these comic shorts. Um, based against uh, the Great Depression. These were kids living in poverty as well. But it never really focused on that. It focused on,
0: first and foremost, kids being kids. So I want to talk about that juxtaposition a little bit, because it's not that Mooney's really imagining anything. No. The movie is certainly grounded in her everyday experience. And she yet, makes the, yeah, the most she makes things. the most out of it. Yeah. right? right. Her, her perspective, though, is, you could argue, still an illusion, in the sense yes. that for the adults anyway, their life, the lives we see are defined largely by struggle. Mm. She doesn't fully have to confront that as, as being a child. These motels, I think about you as a filmmaker, being drawn to just the visuals of some of these locations, the bright purple walls and trying to mm. pass on their proximity to Disney, the Magic Castle, of course, in the name. It's close enough to the Magic Kingdom. Maybe yes. they'll, they'll fool a few people. So <laughs> there, there is this whole illusion that's being treaded on there, and you get to... You get to play with that illusion in the form of the way these hotels look right. and how your camera captures it. Exactly, I had eye
3: candy to work with. Mm-hmm. I was given eye candy just by shooting in the location we were shooting, uh, and then having, of course, an amazing cinematographer Alexis Zabe to capture that, and my and my production designer Stephonic Youth, who who was able to, you know, to, to help us, uh, you know, enhance it, enhance it by just a hair. But yes, uh, shooting along Route 192 was actually very – it was easy because it was just giving me so much to work with. I mean you have essentially these small businesses that were at one time – Focused and targeted towards tourists, so they used the Disney mythology and 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 themes and basically ripped them off mm-hmm. to it to attract tourists. Yeah. So you have brightly colored motels that have themes to them, such as the Magic Castle or you know the Alligator Motel. There were lots that we actually didn't use, and a lot had been shut down over the last ten ten years. I mean, the situation that's going on there is that um, they're trying the local government they're, they're, and and the city they're trying to you know beautify the mm-hmm. section to to bring it back. So, you know, if we had shot this film five years ago, we actually would have had
0: more to work with. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's in a transitional place right now. I wanted to go back to something you said about this being a sort of issue movie. I don't think anyone watching it would feel that way. I think that's because that, that of, was a goal. Yeah, I, I'm sure it was. Yes. And, and the, the kind of touch uh, you have there, and I, I read a couple other interviews with you where you talk about that. I don't know if you actually use the word activism, but it's almost as if you you do have an intention to make people aware of people on the margins and whether there's a specific call to action or not, that element to your films is there. And actually, the one that I was thinking about, the only other film I thought about at all when I... Kind of was processing this movie after seeing it actually it was Harlan County, USA, just because oh, of, yeah. you know, as a documentary, uh, much more clearly an issue mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. but capturing this minor strike in Kentucky in the mm-hmm. 70s and just feeling like you understand everybody's situation, their point of view, seeing how this plays out from their point of view, and, and with a lack of judgment completely. Right. I'm assuming that was important. Yeah, for you that as well. was
3: very important. I mean, Barbara Koppel, what she does is that, you know, she really immerses herself. You really feel like you're with her films you're on the strike line you're mm-hmm. you're getting close to her subjects that's what we wanted to do here we basically wanted to very similar to the way i you know approach tangerine through laughter and through through just simply simple entertainment of, of being with around these characters I, I i'm hoping i'm hoping that audiences will embrace little mooney love her so much that you know um through through being able to share the summer with her and laugh that at the end when they're you know the credits are rolling and they're going home they're discussing uh, the real moonies yeah. that are out there and and perhaps what they can do to help the real moonies um my my number one goal with this film is to shine a light because that's the first step education is always the first step towards towards uh removing the stigma mm-hmm. of of homelessness so that's really The first goal to have people at least interested in enough to talk about it and to look into it for because, for example, I I did not know uh, that there was even a term the hidden homeless. I didn't know there was a hidden homeless population. No, it wasn't until Chris Brigash brought this to my attention, and then and then from there on, it's uh, it's really about what how how much the audience wants to get involved and how and, and what we're what and when people ask me during Q and A's, you know, what I can do to help and how we can help the agencies that we're working with along Route One Ninety Two, uh, in particular the Community Hope Center, which is uh, Hope One Ninety Two, and they 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 provide social services to to homeless families living in the situation there they're like you know this is a national problem this is a nationwide problem so what they encourage people to do is look into it in
0: their local community mm-hmm. because it probably exists and you just don't know about yeah. it the type of intentions though that you're describing are usually the intentions that i only hear described when i'm talking to a non-fiction filmmaker mm-hmm. and I'm curious where that came from for you. Was that always part of your drive behind wanting to make films? Because not everyone who goes to film school or I want to be a director, I want to tell stories for a living has that drive. Hmm.
3: I think as I've gotten older, <laughs> I see it as uh, it's not like a, a responsibility, mm-hmm. but um, hey, I'm, I'm in a privileged place. A, I have this platform. I'm lucky enough to, to be given money to make, to tell stories and i feel that um see this is where for people who haven't seen this film yet they're probably thinking it's a very political film and and it is but but as you said it's 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 done in a way that's disguised and mm-hmm. easily digestible absolutely and so my my hope is is that to use this entertainment medium that i've been trained in and trained to do to to help to help the world mm-hmm. and to you know to to perhaps uh have people uh think perhaps think a different way or, yeah. or open, just, just just open their eyes to to issues
0: that uh, I feel um, are, are very, are, are not known about or underrepresented. It's kind of a tough question to answer because I'm basically saying, why aren't you a selfish artist? Why are you such a good guy, Sean? <laughs> that's kind of what the subtext is. <laughs> um, it's also, you know, it
3: comes it it's a lot of this sometimes comes from people ask, like, why did you cover this subject? And, and it actually does stem from a selfish place at first. I want to know more about it, mm-hmm. um, you know. I I like to know about my fellow man, and 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 sometimes it takes, uh, you know, almost like uh, for me, um, my research process allows me entry into into different communities and neighborhoods, and speaking with people that I that that are outside my circle. And so it
0: does semi-stem from a selfish Sure, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Why is that research process and embedding yourself within this environment and these people almost like a Barbara Koppel would making a documentary? Why is that so important to you? I imagine, obviously, the authenticity is something you're trying to capture and not in a calculated way at all. A movie project coming into these types of environments, it could very much seem like they're coming in to exploit these stories. And I imagine that's something you want to avoid. Most definitely, and there are several answers to that. Uh, Well,
3: first off, I'm really, right now, in cinema, what I'm finding most interesting is sort of this hybrid thing going on Mm -hmm. between narrative fiction filmmaking and documentary, where you're meeting somewhere in the middle, or at least you're you're making narrative, for me, in my case, I'm making uh, narrative fiction films, but I'm employing some sort of documentary technique, and that manifests itself in many different ways. Uh, but, but so there's that. And then there's the fact that, hey, look, for the last five films, at least I've been – I've made six films. For the last five, they've been focused on worlds in which I'm not a part of or I'm an outsider too. So it's, it's a simply about respect. And it's a simply about doing the ethical thing. You could. I would never walk into one of these communities and say, "I know about your life, and here's the script that I'm going to," I've, you know, pre-written. Mm-hmm. And no, no, I, I, I just, I. We obviously need to take the time to understand, to learn the world enough uh, in which we feel comfortable about, uh, to to write about it, and that requires collaboration. That requires uh, enthusiasm from from the our subjects or or, or the community that we're focusing on. And if I didn't get – if I don't have uh, sort of the approval from, you know, key members (laughs) that I'm working with, I don't want to move forward because I just don't feel it would be the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just briefly tell you with Tangerine, uh, Chris and I had passed that corner of Highland and Santa Monica uh, many times, but we didn't really know anything about it. We knew that it was – a, an unofficial red light district, a pretty infamous in- neighborhood that goes back for decades. And we knew that Donut Time was this hub in which the women of the night would would, would, would find shelter and hang out and socialize, etc. That's all we knew. Mm-hmm. So we had to actually take the time to hit the streets and introduce ourselves and, and mingle and socialize, befriend, gain tr- the trust of. And we... Maya Taylor was the first person who expressed true enthusiasm mm. and opened the doors to us and was our passport. Same exact thing happened with Prince of Broadway this film I made 3 films back. Mm-hmm. Same exact thing where we had to take the time to to politely and respectfully uh introduce ourselves to the community, and then find that one person who opens the doors. Yeah. And, and, and in, in the new film, there's actually, there were quite a few people because we were speaking to residents, we were speaking to managers from motels, we were speaking to um, people in the local government and and, and and the people who ran the agencies that help with social services, and also the owners of some of these small businesses. So... There were lots of people who wanted to talk about their experiences and how the recession has, af- from 08, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, uh, is continuing to affect them. And um, and we found, for the most part, a very positive opening up where they, they wanted stories to be told. Mm-hmm. And um, one particular um, motel manager who really semi-inspired the Bobby character... And going into that world, we just thought – Chris and I thought, oh, this is going to be simply a child story or a mother-daughter story. We never even considered the fact that there would be this sort of reluctant father figure. But that all came from us just taking the time to do the right interviews, to meet the right people, and to keep
0: um, our options open of what this thing yeah. could possibly be. Talking about entering – this world, this outside world from your perspective. And there are a lot of artists who do just focus inward and tell stories about worlds they know. And not that that reflects a lack of curiosity, but you seem to have that curiosity that really drives you. Has that always been something about the artistic process that intrigued you? The fact that it gives you that entree to all these worlds that are foreign to you? Mm, I think so.
3: I I, I think so. I've started to to realize, looking back at my last uh, what decade of filmmaking, that um, that it has allowed me to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a in hindsight. Thing. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, there's also this other side of filmmaking, the festival circuit, and that allows you to see the world and gives you inspiration as well. So I've always been aware that you make a film and you can see the world, <laughs> you know. <Yeah>. But um <laughs> but 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 I never really thought about until just recently when I started. When actually critics and journalists and people started pointing out that there's a, you know, common thread through my films that I've I've started to realize that oh yes yeah, so, yeah this is also allowing me to, to 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 see the world in a different way
0: yeah I'm guessing I'm not the only one to point out that in two movies in a row here now you have surprisingly tender moments where people embrace surrounded by washing machines oh it that happens here in this I movie did. not. The hug I with, did not think about The hug that. with Bria and <laughs> with the housekeeper. Oh. Right? She's, she's got all those wash machines doing yeah, all the laundry. You're the first and, person to point that out. <laughs> I, think, I think it's probably because I think about that moment from Tangerine so yeah, vividly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I almost wondered if it was a little callback to that movie. I, you know what? It, it wasn't in my head. But I'm going to ask Chris about this tonight. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't wait to hear how that goes. So there's a lot more to talk about with this film, a wonderful film, The Florida Project. But we have to close with our quick rapid fire Q&A, the film Spotting 5. Okay. Hitting you on the spot here. The last movie you saw in the theater that wasn't your own movie. Oh, damn it. (laughs) <laughs> Why didn't you? I would have looked up. No no, but I, but yeah. I've been actually now. I use Letterboxed.
3: I do too. Yes, yeah, yeah, so it. so I can tell you that actually. So the last one was. Ah, I'm usually doing it on my uh, <laughs> here into diary. There we go. Sorry guys, please hold. Uh, I saw Gook, Justin Chong's mm-hmm. Gook. Yes, which uh, I have not seen it yet. Which um, was a very you know impressive. Uh, it was actually his second film. Um, and uh beautiful cinematography, black and white cinematography you know what it 's about right it's, i don 't it 's about two uh, brothers who are running a, um, a a sneaker shop in um paramount california mm-hmm. back during the uh, one thousand nine hundred and ninety
0: two during the riots right so uh, very impressive huh so that 's a new movie what about a movie you revisited recently get that diary back out something you'd already seen before i've been into you know i'm always into genre so but just recently i've been looking at a
3: lot of uh italian mobster films from okay. the mid-60s for some reason uh so i watched uh, rome arm to the teeth and then uh, the cynic the rat and the fist i don't know those movies. no um those are, um they were Umberto Lenzi, mm-hmm. you know, like Cannibal Holocaust and all that stuff. Not Holocaust, no. I'm sorry, Cannibal Ferox. But um, it, you know, I uh, these were films that had a big influence on uh, Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. You can see a lot of okay. uh, a lot of pulp in these, and uh, and and they're they're beautifully, they're gorgeously shot. And the, and what's what I love right now is that there are all these Blu-ray labels that are that are doing amazing 4K scans on these
0: old films and making them look brand new. The Underrated movie that you love most people you know, discerning tastes for whatever reason they don 't appreciate it, but you do oh um, i I
3: consider used cars like one of the most underrated films uh, most underrated comedies yeah ever. I think it's one of the best comedies ever made. I think that Kurt Russell has you know we think of him as more of an action star, mm-hmm. but I wish he would do more comedy because he is so freaking funny in yes yeah. cars and zemeckis's uh direction was it was probably his second film i believe yeah that sounds right yeah and um it, it's as tight as his most recent i mean it's it's pure zemeckis and
0: and bob gale and uh it's just hilarious huh. i highly recommend anybody out there uh checking it out <laughs> a random movie you love just what what pops to your mind well i i, I go to my top usually top Great. three
3: uh, Lars von Trier the idiots. Yeah. Yeah. Always oh, go back to that one. It had a, it had a tremendous impact on me mm-hmm. and not just because, you know, dogma 95 had an impact on me. It's, it's, it's the type of film where I've been trying to find that balance, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, comedy and pathos. And, and, and I think I, I've tried that a lot with, you know, I try that with, I, Tangerine and the Florida Project, but but uh, it's a dangerous film. It's a subversive film, and yet it's a film that's make, that you can laugh uh, from beginning to end. And so, uh, not not the end, <laughs> but, I mean, but never I, the end. Before, no, no. Sure. But but uh, the Idiots is a really wonderful, uh,
0: underseen film. So, what about the other two? You said a top three, real quick.
3: Oh, uh, uh, Harold and Maude. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it changes a lot. Of course,
0: it does. It changes like every week. Yeah. As it should, Christiana F. Okay, yeah. Well, we'll go with those for now. Last question: Your favorite book about the movies or movie making? Oh, damn it! <laughs> I wish I was prepped.
3: <laughs> um, ha, um, how can I not say? You know, *Raging Bulls*. Uh, easy Riders. Oh yeah, Diskin's book. Yes, I mean it's just it, it. You get you open up that cover and you're glued. You cannot. Uh, you have to read
0: it from the it's so the true cover. yeah
3: well and it's, also it's just that's the era that i'm most sure. inspired by i think that's the era that i wish i was a part uh-huh. of you never yeah. wish you were older but kind i wish i was and <laughs> <laughs> got <laughs> to be part that of that generation
0: yeah. yeah well it's always a pleasure to talk to a film spotting golden brick winner especially one who has such a wonderful new film out so thank you sean baker so well, much well, for your thank time thank you for having
3: me it's Nice to finally be here and I again I really love your podcast. Thank you. I'm a big fan and uh yeah, cool. Thanks.
2: Oh, let's go come up. Have a nice day.
0: Love you, baby. I love you too.
2: Thanks again to Sean Baker for taking the time for that conversation. His film, The Florida Project, is currently playing in limited release. If you see it, we do want to hear your thoughts. Send those to feedback at filmspotting.net. And that's the show. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Take a moment while you're there to vote in the current film spotting poll, What's the Best Horror Movie of the Last Decade? And if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Next week, Adam will be back. And we're going to discuss Noah Baumbach's latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, that features Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler. It's currently playing in limited release and exclusively on Netflix. We're going to share our top five Noah Baumbach scenes. We might, might just get to a review of The Snowman as well. This is the new Norway set thriller starring Michael Fassbender. If you have any thoughts about this week's show, send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail. Keep it about 30 seconds, and we might use it on an upcoming episode, 312-264-0744. That's the number where you can do that. You can also find it under the About Us tab at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. If you liked what you heard on the show today, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us reach new listeners. Thank you, Michael, for helping out again. We've been working you overtime. Sorry about that. I, I hope you're not too exhausted.
1: It's not hard to s- sit and talk about a movie you really like, like The Florida Project. And, this is true. And even wrestle with one you like with reservations like Blade Runner 2049 recently. So, well, it's um, been good to have you on board. Just arrange for good, good product.
2: You that know. does help, doesn't it? I don't it? even like to call them films or movies. Just product. Just product. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Well, if listeners want to keep up with you, even though you won't be on the show next week, follow what you're doing. Where can they find you?
1: I don't care if they don't want to keep up with me. They're going to have to keep up with me. This is an
2: order. ChicagoTribune.com slash movies. Also on Twitter, at Phillips Tribune. You've got your marching orders now. Go and do it, people. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
3: Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
0: Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.